Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, episode number, I think, like, 20-something. I don't know 20? at this point. I think, we're at, I think we're at 20. Yeah, 20. Oh, hey, 20. I guessed it correctly. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the podcast where we talk about Best Picture nominees in a series from a given year. The year series we are in now is 1985, so it's episode two of the 1985 series. Today we will be talking about Kiss of the Spider-Woman. The Kiss. Yes. And it's not the Kiss, it is just Kiss of the Spider-Woman. Just Kiss. Kiss of the Spider-Woman. Josh and Ken, let's start here with Kenny. What's your history with Kiss of the Spider-Woman? Well, I just watched it uh, literally yesterday. And that is that is the extent to my history with this film. I knew of it. I knew it existed. I knew uh, mainly because William Hurt uh, won Best Actor for it. I knew it starred Wal- Raul Julia. Yeah. Um, and that's about it. I knew it was set in South America. I'm, I'm running okay. out of things to say about what I knew before watching this movie. That's about it. All right. Josh, is that about the same for you or do you have more? I think I even have less history with it, if that's if that's possible. Uh, I too saw it for the first time yesterday in preparation for this episode. But um, in terms of like what I knew about it beforehand, uh, I knew nothing of the plot. Mm-hmm. I kind of assumed based on the title that'd be more of a noir, and it's not. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. That was my uh, that was my next question with that. I'm gonna cut you off and ask you about that. Is the title? I mean, we'll get to what it means later. But was the title misleading to you in terms of we sat down and watched like 20 minutes of this movie and like, oh, it's this now? I was expecting an intellectual version of arachnophobia. Is that what <laughs> okay? Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I mean, between that is not just the the title of the movie, but also the poster too. Yes, which is just like a still from like a, a very very brief fantasy sequence. Oh yes, in the, in the movie, um, it almost looks like the poster of Species, the movie Species. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah. Point. It also comes late. To your point, Josh, it's a it's a short sequence that comes very late in the movie. Relatively speaking, I felt misled to answer your question. Yes. Oh. Okay. Uh, and when when and <laughs> to come back to my original answer, which was that I didn't know anything about this before we watched it. Uh, I really had no idea what this was about. And like when the movie started, and uh, within the first like five or ten minutes, it really does give you a sense. Okay, this is what the movie is, and this yeah. what's going to be for the next two hours. I was like. Oh, really? Okay. And it right. it <laughs> starts <laughs> essentially in media race, right? It does, yes. And it does kind of the novel does something similar and I'll get into that later where you're kind of you do kind of go, Okay, oh, we're just gonna do this for a while. All right. Yeah. And I think there's interesting yeah, yeah. things in what it's kind of doing for a while, but it's a very insular and kind of closed off, lower scope, more intimate film. Uh literally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's directed by Hector Babenco. I'm probably botching that. He was a Argentinian director. Any had you heard of him before no. today? No, I, I'd heard the name probably in association with this film. I'm trying to. Th- mm-hmm. I think he directed Ironweed, right? Is that another he one? He did. Of his? Yeah, he did. Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep. Um, I thought. I always thought he was Bra- Brazilian, and I had to look this up. You're correct, he's Argentinian, but apparently he spent most of his life in Brazil. So that's kind of where mm-hmm. we get, mm-hmm. which it's it's never actually, correct me if I'm wrong, it's never actually said in the movie that this is set in Brazil, but it is supposed to be set in Brazil during it the military. It is supposed to be Brazil though, right? Yeah. Because right, Brazil yeah. was under a military dictatorship for a couple of decades. The um, novel is in Buenos Aires. Oh, is Argentina. it? Right. Mm-hmm. I know the novel is, but I thought I, thought I read that the heat intentionally moved the movie to brazil but let me double check that while mm-hmm. you talk about other stuff 
Yeah, yeah, it says Brazil. Yeah, it's okay. Brazil. I had to look into Babenko to f- uncover that because I was a little confused. I thought he was Brazilian because of the location of the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you're right. He's Argentinian, which is interesting. He's he's assumedly Babenko has experience with dicta- military dictatorships in both of these two countries. So yeah. he's unfortunately experienced quite a bit of um, South America's kind of uh, most restless moments in the 20th century. And I think that's a lot of what kind of brought him to the attention of, not that this was a huge studio movie, more on that later, but what brought him to the attention of a wider audience that was English speaking was his films that were kind of rooted in a gritty realism, his earlier films. Uh, The one that he was most famous for, which I have not seen, was called, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, it's like Pixote. Piote, probably, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, And that's what kind of got him the clout to make this, right? Yeah. It was a pretty acclaimed novel that he was adapting. For Kiss of the Spider Woman? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, The other film I mentioned that I'm Piote, it's a life of a boy on the streets of Sao Paulo involved in crimes, prostitution, and drugs. So that's, again, haven't seen it, but that's hard hitting. So that was, it brought him sort of more international acclaim, and then he gets. This assignment, and as you mentioned afterward, makes Ironweed. I think ultimately he made 10 films in in his career. Uh, one Oscar nomination, and that was for directing Kiss of the Spider Woman. Who wrote the screenplay of Kiss of a Spider Woman? Well, I believe you told us this yeah. little trivia fact uh, mm-hmm. over text, and it was uh, Leonard Schrader. And why would screenplay. Leonard Schrader be important to serious film people? Well, uh, he's got a brother named Paul Schrader <laughs> who uh, constantly needs to clear his throat, and he's also out of breath at all times. Which, just a, a programming <laughs> note, we several times have made fun of him. We'll continue to make fun of Paul Schrader. I think we all actually love Paul Schrader. He's just—I would love to give him a big hug. Yes. Oh yeah, yes. I just think he's—and he definitely smells like cigars. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, so yeah, written by his brother Leonard Schrader. Uh, a couple times they actually collaborated on scripts. I believe mm. there was a film called The Yakuza that they wrote together. Mm. Uh, Leonard gets an Academy Award nomination for adapting the screenplay based on the novel by Manuel Puig. Oh, so he got his first Oscar nomination about 30 years before his brother did. He did, yeah, yeah which is kind of wild. Beat for Paul, yeah. For sure. And the other Oscar nomination other than Best Picture, the reason we're talking about this, is Best Actor for William Hurt, which he wins. Yeah. Hurt also wins the BAFTA Award, Best Actor at Cannes, and Best Actor from the National Board of Review. This had four Globe nominations, uh, Best Picture, and then acting nominations for each of the principals, which were William Hurt, Raul Julia, and Sonia Braga. Raul Julia, what else have you seen him in? Well, there's there's uh, there's obviously the most famous, uh, I think, uh, franchise that people recognize him from, which is Adam's Family. Yeah. Because Gomez in the early 90s. Do, 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 do. <laughs> okay. What else have you seen him in? He's also, I mean, this this is, I guess, a throwback to our um, our uh, background I- I- with uh, Jesuits and yeah, Catholic teaching. Go. Yes. Um, I, I was, did you ever? Did you guys watch Romero in in of course. theology yeah. class? Okay. Um, yeah. So he played Romero in. It's actually a pretty decent Father film. Oscar Romero. In, yeah. In uh, it's it's actually I, I'd recommend it to people. Um, uh, it's a really good performance from Julia. Um, that in my film, memory, I I may be misremembering, but in my memory, every post, every every high school classroom in our high school had that poster <laughs> in the room. Is, yeah, it re- realistically, it might have been like one or two classrooms had that there, poster, but like, isn't he? Isn't the the poster of him in like the Target in like crosshairs? 
I think so. No, it's, or it's him saying no, there's guns. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. he's like the peace broker. Correct. Or, you know, the ostensible peace broker. Um, Roger, who's who was um, Puerto Rican in actuality, but quickly starting in the 1980s. I mean, he got to start, I think, in theater in the 70s because he was playing like in New York opposite Meryl Streep. Mm. and Pacino in that um, in the 70s. But starting in the 80s, he kind of became Hollywood's like go-to for South American performances. He just let just fill him in. Like in this movie, he's, I believe, supposed to be Brazilian, as we were talking earlier. Um, he's obviously Puerto Rican, though. So he's, he's an in American. In Romero, he's Salvadorian. Um, yeah. Yeah, so he plays Valentina Ar- Arregue in this film, and Luis Molina is played by... William Hurt. Hurt. William Hurt. Yes. Um, where are you guys at with William Hurt? Not not in this film, but just what you brought into watching this film. I don't have as much of a relationship as other people seem to. Uh, he, he died recently, he I did. think last year. Yes. And, um, you know, there's a, a, a lot of people eulogized him and it was a it was kind of a big to do. And I realized how little of his movies I'd seen. Um, I saw Body Heat. A few Uh-oh. years ago, which I, I really enjoyed, but I, I like Double Indemnity better. It's basically a remake of Double Indemnity. Right. Um, uh, I feel like I haven't seen like his big movies. Like, um, uh, like this was his first of three Best Actor nominations in a row. Yeah. And he's one of only he's only one of only like a handful of guys who have ever had three Best Actor, uh, three consecutive Best Actor nominations. Um, which real were quick, Spencer Trick. Spencer Tracy, Gary Cooper, Marlon Brando, Gregory Peck, Jack Nicholson, and Russell Crowe. I looked this up beforehand. I apologize for for spoiling the game. <laughs> as for as for William Hurt, um, his nom- the nominations are starting with this is the first one of the three, right? Yes. Kisses Spider Woman, yes. Children of Lesser God, which is the following Correct. year, and we'll, we'll talk more about that I think in a moment. And Broadcast News 1987, which yes. is probably the film, if I'm being honest, the one that I'd seen most frequently with him in. He's mm-hmm. he's been in a history of violence. He's in. Um, the yes. Big Chill is another one I love. That actually, that comes before Kiss of the Spider Woman. Eighty eighty three. That's yeah. a great cast of. Uh, that's a great ensemble um, movie. Um, he's in AI, artificial intelligence, and um, <laughs> <laughs> forgot about that. Lost in Space, starring uh, he's Matt in LeBlanc. Fil- yes, that's, that's right. correct. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's I think to a, a huge. Uh, I mean, an international audience. Most recently, he played. Um, I believe the Secretary of State in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He um, did. He played Captain Ross, Colonel Ross, something. It was yeah, yes. yeah. whatever the, the the antagonist in the Hulk. Whatever I believe, that guy's name yes. is. But yes. he's and it's he's weird. His character's both now in there by Harrison Ford. Correct. Harrison Ford's going to take over for that role. But um, it, it's interesting because he he had to. I feel like that character throughout the the films he appears has to play both antagonists, but at the same time he kind of works. He's constantly working with them. Kind of like uh, what Julie Julie Louis Dreyfus is supposed to be doing nowadays with her character in that universe. Um, I, here's what I was going to say though. With that, I'm not sure Hurt always pulls it off. And when I say that, not just within the Marvel universe, but in across his filmography, um, he's got some performances that are I think perfectly fine. But a lot of the times, I always I always feel he comes off kind of stiff and stilted. So to to talk again about. Our us in high school, Josh. Do you remember where we saw William Hurt in the high, in our high school curriculum? I do. Uh, we both took a class on the works of one William Shakespeare, <laughs> and our teacher in the Shakespeare class was also our film teacher. Previously mentioned this part podcast, Mr. Mark Cummings, and so he was fond of showing us clips of either Shakespeare, you know, Shakespearean film adaptations, or even filmed stage adaptations of Shakespeare. And when we uh, studied *A Midsummer Night's Dream*. 
the Bard's famous comedy. Um, there was a, I think it was a, a New York stage production, like maybe even Shakespeare in the Park, possibly, of um, A Midsummer Night's Dream from like the 80s or 90s. And I believe William Hurt played Oberon? O- Oberon, he did. Yeah. Yep. And he had some really interesting choices <laughs> in how he spoke and his accent. I wouldn't even call it an accent. It was like the cadence oh, no. with which he spoke. That's a- and it just the random modulation of tones. I, I think the best descriptor is Leonide. I, like, I remember him oh, randomly nice. kind of breaking into, like, a lion. Like, he'd be doing a lion, and then he'd go like that or something. And I was like, what okay. is good? Even okay. when you're 17 and you don't understand Shakespeare, I'm like, this can't be, like, this can't be good. <laughs> this can't, this can't be what he meant, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hurt, he made some Hurt choices. Did not, Hurt, for the record, did not do accents very well. I've never heard of him. I've never, ever heard of uh, him. He, he thankfully avoided them for the most part. Um, but that's why when, when we decided to, or not decided, but when this 1985 comes up, we're going to watch this film. I've never seen it. I was really terrified if he was going to be trying to put on a, a Brazilian accent for this movie. Thankfully, he does not try to do that. I just want to say that, like, you know, as Ken was listing his credits and stuff that he's known for, he was just, like, listing movies I haven't seen, movie I haven't seen, movie I haven't mm. seen, movie I haven't seen. Um, like I said, I've seen Body Heat, and I guess to your point, Ken, I don't think he's very good in Body Heat. Mm. Um, I think Kathleen I think Kathleen Turner is excellent Oh, she's in that, good. Yeah, but, like, she's very good in that movie. I also, like, I struggle to, like, buy William Hurt as sexy. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, they're, which... bo- they're, both, they're both all kinds of naked in that movie, and, like... William Hurt's kind of like this like doughy balding guy with a mustache, and Kathleen Turner's like a knockout smoke show, and it's just like I don't know that disconnect never worked for me. He's not very good in it. He's not very charming. Um, so any any listeners who have posters of William Hurt on your wall, direct your, your hate mail to Josh at uh, the Sloop Josh B on Twitter. Please uh, uh-huh. please at me. Thirst for William Hurt at Josh's expense. Uh-huh. Um, I, I recently saw History of Violence for the first time, actually after he died, probably. Um, I think he's good in that, but I, I think that's also a, a place where maybe an accent could have helped. And I was going to go so far as to one. say, I think that's, I think personally, I think that's his, maybe his best performance. That well, that's I've his, that's seen. his fourth Oscar nomination. He had yeah. these three in a row, then he got nominated for that for supporting. And actor. he's in it yeah. for about eight minutes in the third act. And I yeah. think what works about it is, again, he makes some choices, but that movie is very highly stylized, especially in bursts of violence. And it's based on a graphic novel. So I think yeah. it's actually a really good fit for him. Yes. Well, it's also, he, he has the benefit of like kind of walking into that movie as the movie kind of turns on its head a little bit. Correct. Um, kind of like how, like, back comparison, but like Jeremy Irons walking into Margin Call oh, and just like uh-huh. throwing 99 miles an hour. Uh, not not completely dissimilar, not a, not a great analogy, but um, yeah, so I guess like William Hurt has never really done it for me, but I also come from a really ignorant place where I haven't seen, I haven't seen broadcast news. So here's like the broadcast thing, I was news, just I about to like go to broadcast his, his news. Movie. Yeah. I love broadcast news. I really do. I, I, I've watched the film many, many times. Um, I love Albert Brooks in that movie. Holly Hunter, Jack Nicholson, they're, they're all fantastic. The only one in the movie that frustrates me to no end is William Hurt. He's in a lot of it because it's really it's really William Hurt and Albert Brooks and Holly Hunter kind of in this, this, this threesome of a lead um, throughout the whole film. And he's supposed to be like this attractive, like – you know he he's not the brightest he's not like albert brooks who's the intellectual but he's the he fits the 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 expected uh description of an anchor man and you watch the movie and it just does not 
he doesn't really sell it. I can't buy him as an anchorman. I can't buy him as a as a sexy lead. Holly Hunter's supposed to be attracted to him. I'm not. I'm not seeing it. <laughs> uh, just one last thing of us kind of shitting on his filmography. <laughs> <laughs> you all did. I mean, realize this turned into like let's rip he's on dead. the he, recently he deceased. Um, he he's in the wonderful film we watched in our little Zoomy film club until the end of the world. But That's again, true. he's yeah. like the worst part of that. Um, that that movie's <laughs> like five hours long. Um, it is, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think now, pro- I still want to do some boilerplate stuff, but it's probably as good a time as any, at least, I, we're not going to like debate and discuss this, but just to acknowledge that b- before, but certainly after his death, which was just about one year ago, previous romantic interests, uh, romantic partners of his, came out and accused him of a number of pretty horrible behaviors. Uh, including yeah. crimes, crimes even, yeah, yes, yeah, um, yeah. including uh, physical violence, drug abuse, rape, etc. Um, I, I just think that that's we're, we're going to talk about the movie, but I think that's something that needs to be acknowledged. That was in the back of my mind as I was sure. watching this. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I, I'll, yeah. I'll leave it at that. I just think it should be called out. Um, yeah. So that's the William Hurt business there and we'll talk a lot about his performance because yes. a lot of just what circles this movie is his performance but let me give a a synopsis real quickly here of this film luis molina and valentin Aregue, again i'm botching that are cellmates in a south american prison luis described in this as a trans individual is found guilty of immoral behavior, and Valentin is a political prisoner. To escape reality, Luis invents romantic movies, while Valentin tries to keep his mind on the situation he's in. During the time they spend together, the two men come to understand and respect one another. Fair synopsis. Uh, well, yeah, except, I, except the invents portion. We'll get to that, yeah, too. Yeah, he's, 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 re- he's recounting a movie he's seen. He's yep. not inventing, is he? Uh, that's vague. That's vague. Okay. Um, he says he's recounting a movie he's seen, but you look into the particular details, but in the way in which it reflects trauma that happened in his life, he's, I think, dealing with that by projecting the Sonia Braga character. But we'll get into that in a minute. Sonia Braga, this kind of brought her to the international stage. I had not, I've only seen her in one other thing. It was Baccarat. Yeah, it's about recent. two years ago. Yeah. And she was awesome in yeah. Baccarat. She's like a badass town doctor. If you haven't seen Baccarat, you should check it out. But it's not for the faint of stomach. Um, okay, so let's move into a couple more boilerplate things. This film made $17 million at the box office on a $1 million budget. It was grossly over budget. It was budgeted for $300,000, and they went to a million. So this is often recognized as the first independent film, yeah. independently financed film, to be nominated for Best Picture, which is kind of wild to think Yeah, just... In 38 years, the number and the way that independent films have kind of turned into like best picture movies, even yeah. what would be an independent film. Now, granted, it adjusted for inflation. So a million dollar budget. You look at something like the most recent winner, Everything Everywhere All at Once, had a far bigger budget than that and still is an, an independent film by definition. Yeah. Uh, so this this film also, because of the low the low budget, both of the principals who were rather famous waived their salaries and allegedly just asked for flights and lodging to be covered. And yeah. Uh, well, and the the principal photography was took 100 days, which was 40 days over schedule. Jeez. Yeah. Why does that They're shock you? They're shooting in a you? room. Okay. They're shooting in a room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
this was adapted into a stage play and a musical, and you yes. can see why. You're yes. watching it, and you're like, okay, this is prime, prime real estate for stage play. I knew that it had been, it had been adapted into a, a, a stage play, and I swear, when, as soon as I started watching the movie, I had to pause and go back and double-check whether the play preceded the movie. Because the movie feels so much like they're adapting a stage production. And so I think part of what was difficult was they shot a lot of scenes that they didn't intend to be in the movie and improvisation because the two of them hurt and julia had a very hard time getting chemistry with one another william hurt uh let's go back to shitting on william hurt was also <laughs> notoriously difficult to work with hector bambanko said something like william hurt promised me he'd be difficult and he more than delivered on that promise <laughs> uh, which i think is great and so at one point they actually switched roles in rehearsal and Hurt suggested that they run with that in the movie and Hector Bibenko was like no way not happening um so then later as they edited a lot of the dialogue was re-recorded through ADR or rewritten and sort of spoken off screen so Leonard Schrader was still involved even in post-production kind of rewriting the script at that point so that's a lot of the background business of the film there's some i think important political background that i know ken wanted to speak about so ken do you want to give us some context there sure you mentioned that the the production ran 40 days over they're shooting this in like 1983 so the film comes out in 85 but they're shooting a couple years prior and they're shooting it in uh sao paulo brazil so they they when you said the 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 two leads they were just seeking flights and lodging yeah because they had to go all the way down to brazil to shoot this and when they're shooting it, Brazil is still uh, still very much um, under the, the the hand of a military dictatorship that started in the the earlier mid to mid sixties. Um, the dic- the military di- dictatorship doesn't really come to an end until eighty five. In fact, this movie um, screens at Cannes, as my understanding. So that's May of nineteen eighty five, and an elected government has just taken power in Brazil in March of eighty five. So by the time they're actually people are actually seeing this film. Uh, Brazil is no longer uh, they're they're a democracy and they're they're trying to find their new footing. Um, but when they're making this movie, it's interesting that they're producing this film in the country in which they're kind of uh, they're they're very much not kind of but very much critiquing. Um, I find that fascinating. Uh, I, I'm surprised they pulled it off. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's part of the power of the reception of the movie had to do with the ways in which it was handling taboo political and social topics. Sure. Um, I want to get into that more later, but I want to build off something Josh said just a a little bit ago that he sort of felt misled by the title. And then you get into the movie and you're like, Oh, it's this, uh, Josh, as we know, loves structure and loves opening and closing images slash shots. It's valuable real estate. It is. I don't care about it. This is, well, what did you think of the use of the real estate in the first act of the film? Uh, well, one thing I noted is, as you said, it opens in media res and like it opens with like a pan around this. The first images is a pan around their cell really before you see either, even see either character. So and it's what do we see on this? What's the decorum of the cell? Decorations. What kind so of you, decorations? Well, we see some uh, old Hollywood headshots. I noticed there is a 
there's a headshot of Rita Hayworth, yep, which yes. I thought was really funny given the fact that they're in a jail cell. And uh, the most famous use of Rita Hayworth in a jail cell is in the Shawshank Redemption. Um, no one digs a tunnel behind this Rita Hayworth, though. And uh, Manuel Puig wrote a novel called... Is it betrayed by? Yeah, betrayed by Rita Hayworth in 1968. So I think that was mm. perhaps a nod to that. Um, but sorry, continue. There's also like uh, kind of um, handmade drapes or like uh, you know improvised drapes and other colorful pictures and that kind of thing. Um, I can't think of what else there was though. You seem to you seem to know, and you're, you're quizzing me. So what no, was the answer here? No, no. Uh, I think what we want to point out there is those things are all uh, feminine. Yes. Yeah. They're they're all focused on um, women. They're focused on aesthetics. There's and, even like clotheslines, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. clotheslines up and, and, and then clothes. Of which William Hurt sort of fabulously emerges from several times throughout the film. And so what it's doing is you're listening to the way he's describing this film. You know that we're set in prison and that this is in some ways a political military movie. But right off the bat, before revealing who's speaking, we get information character development character exposition given to us through that that slow pan over his belongings correct and it is and he's you you just mentioned it he's speaking this whole time he's giving yes. we, we hear william hurt's voice so molina is actually he's actually describing a movie within a movie that i have no doubt we're going to talk about shortly and now's a good time to do it yeah we can i, I was just gonna say <laughs> he's yeah it's interesting that the, his, what he's because what he's talking about does not match up with what we're seeing because what we're Correct. seeing is clearly clearly a, a, some kind of small cell even if you don't know for sure it's a prison cell it looks like a rundown one room apartment if at best um, and we're seeing all of this 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 as you said feminine apparel and decoration and we're what we're hearing is the description of a kind of a woman seeking romance. Yes. So importantly, Molina reads this as a very sexy romantic movie where he just can't he that German officer. He's so tall and blonde. Oh, that German officer. And then Valentine is like, hold on. This is what kind of movie, Josh? (laughs) Oh, it's a Nazi propaganda. film. It's a Nazi propaganda movie. Molina is describing. Yes. Which Molina has no idea about. And doesn't even really care. He's he's markedly apolitical at the beginning of this film. Yeah, Josh. He is more he's more into the aesthetic of the he movie is. than any pen- potential political message intended by the movie. And I think this is a very key point that the film and the novel make, which is the way in which the aesthetics of the stories that we tell help shape our understanding of the political moments that we're in. And Nazi propaganda worked very effectively that way in the way that you know, Goebbels and the Ministry of Propaganda hired people like Lenny Reifenstahl, whose films, by all intents and purposes, from a formalist standpoint, are very impressive. But what they're hiding is really nefarious, horrible messages. And that I think said, that's something. That, yes, I was going to say that said the movie within a movie, the movie within this movie looks, looks like, like shit. total shit. Yeah, it's yeah, it, lo- it looks like. They they were like we should put a filter on this. Anybody got like a used coffee filter, and we're just gonna put it over the lens. <laughs> ignoring <laughs> ignoring by the way that the, the French woman he's describing her name is Lenny, which is yes. a German name. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. Hey, I got Go this. Ahead. I got this old treasure map. Can we use that as a filter on the <laughs> yeah, camera here? Yeah. yeah. And um, yes. Notably, when uh, you mentioned that Malene is apolitical, uh, notably within the first ten minutes, a another political prisoner is brought in to the prison and uh valentine kind of like watches through the 
window in their cell mm-hmm. as they're mm-hmm. as they're let into their respective cell. And Molina seems so disinterested in this update. He's like yawning yeah. and being like, "Oh, you know, oh, we got a new prisoner. Huh? Who, who, you know?" And he doesn't mm-hmm. say like, "Who cares?" But like, that's kind of like the subtext. Yeah. And Valentine's like, "Oh, this is a big deal because there's another political prisoner. I'm a political prisoner." But Val- you know, Molina's like, "Yeah, okay." One of these two cellmates, one of the two men, Valentin is very he's very present he's in the now he's literally observing what's going on in the jail his thoughts are constantly what's going on outside of the jail whereas molina seems to be um filling his life with this escape this escapism into this romantic story which he insists upon describing despite valentin's protestations early on in the film he doesn't care about the movie he doesn't want to hear about the movie um particularly after he realizes what kind of movie it is yeah, he does say, and it, this is this is bigger in the novel, but he actually requests the recitation of these movies because he can't sleep. So it's a way of him to kind of like play a movie as he's trying to sleep. Um, but there's something else real quick about the propaganda film is we, we also learn um, Molina has no idea that he, he describes people with funny hats. Yes. And Valentin is like... Yeah. You idiot! Like those are Jews. What are you talking about? Right. So he yeah. he also has like seemingly a lack of understanding of very recent world history as well. That's something that's important. And I think where we see that disengagement with you know aesthetics versus the larger political point also comes when they get groceries brought in by Molina's mom, where Molina is really into like oh look at all the stuff that she's you know she brings me, and then of course when the warden does it and. Uh, Valentine looks at the food as a way of uh, rejecting it because he he does hunger strikes. So even that for him is something that b- both of these men's bodies are politicized in the film. Uh, one one by choice and one by by cultural circumstance. Josh, which is which? Uh, I well, that's a great point. You could argue both. Um, yeah. I think from the beginning. By circumstances, Valentine, and by by I'm sorry, by purpose is Valentine. <laughs> by circumstances, Molina. But also the blurring of that line is a, is a key yeah. point in the film. You said that that uh, Molina's body is politicized in, in its in its own way. I guess is that what mm-hmm. you just said? Yeah, by the the context, by cult, cultural yeah, by and historical context. context. Cultural context. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting, and I guess this is kind of like. <laughs> with all respect to the movie, this is kind of like the one interesting idea I found in the movie was that Molina has a cause, you know, Molina as a trans person, or, you know, or, you know, in modern, in modern parlance would be called a trans person nowadays. I'm not sure what it was called back then or well, what term they yeah. used for themselves. So this is a key distinction real quick. The novel never uses that. The film never uses that. They right. both present him as a basically very effeminate gay man who did yes. drag outside of, in in his past life, now we would call this a trans woman because he says in the film and the novel, basically mm-hmm. like, I wish I was a woman. I could be if I would cut yes. my own penis off if I could. Yes. So yes. I think it's yeah. Sorry. And at one point, Valentin, you know, as a form of taunting, says, you know, what's this between your legs? Yeah. And uh, Molina says, a mistake. Yeah. You know. Right. right. So again. Our modern understanding, I would call this a per, I would call this per se trans woman, but uh, in the context of the movie and the book, uh, I, I, is he pronoun appropriate? I'm not really sure. So Molina's Molina's body is politicized. Molina Molina could theoretically belong to a cause, whether that is uh, 
gay rights or trans rights or what have you, but Melina is decidedly apolitical. So, like, I guess the the idea of personal politics and, like, societal politics was interesting things swirling around this movie. For sure. Um, and, and which one Melina prioritizes, which one Valentine prioritizes. And I thought that the fates, the respective fates of both characters was an interesting twist in that regard because – not I mean we're far enough in um Melina who was a personal politic kind of person and not really a larger cause kind of person ends up dying for a larger cause yes and he's forced to do what or chooses in a sense but what circumstance does Melina find himself in in act three uh he's trying to like deliver a message to Valentine's compatriots in in whatever uh you know political struggle they're going through and in the course of that ends up getting shot and killed yeah, so he willingly agrees to become a political agent on behalf of Valentine in the third part mm-hmm. of the film. And I think it's key that the first thing he does is goes back to his drag bar where he was a yes. performer, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then interestingly, in a flip, in what way does Valentine's body... Uh, well, the ending for Valentine and the ending of the movie is a... I think we're supposed to assume a fantasy sequence... And, you know, the, the a lot of the movie, particularly Molina telling the story of this movie within a movie to Valentine is like fantasy as escape. And so that is literally true in the final two minutes of the movie where Valentine ostensibly escapes the prison, but, you know, as a fantasy. So it's fantasy as escape, literally. But notably, his fantasy is not standing before, you know, oppressed people and raising right. a fist and liberating them. His fantasy is a very personal uh, rendezvous and and uh, uh, meeting with a woman, Marta and right? r- Marta and running away with a woman. So with it should be pointed out. Not only, this is with a connection to the title, I suppose. But yeah, his fantasy is filling the is kind of filling the void left by um, uh, Molina's description or fantasy, his story created about the Spider Woman, uh, and the void left by Molina. Because what does Valentine do before Molina leaves? They bone. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Possibly. Um, yes. <laughs> the lights and, are off, so we're not really sure what exactly happens, but well, presumably. there's an, a line there about, left me, let me lift my legs. I mean. It could be a number. Of, maybe they're just tickling. That's that's correct. They could be tickling. <laughs> the tickle of the spider woman. Yeah. Um, so the, the, Sonia Braga plays three roles. She yes. plays Lenny in the fantasy film. She plays Marta in flashback and fantasy, who is Valentine's uh, woman on the outside. And then the titular spider woman. Right. And the the triangulation of those three characters, they're all fictions, even though Marta also does have, have an existence within the film. They're all fictions, but they also all are tied then to Melina as well, because Melina talks about the Spider Woman. Uh, Melina, in a sense, when when the kiss happens between them, when he's like, "Before you leave, will you kiss me?" Is that's the titular kiss of the Spider Woman? So we're is, also yes. getting yes, a yes, yes. a both of the men are participating in. A moment of political solidarity, a moment of homosexual bonding, and in a moment of transgendering. Wait, how does how does Valentine take part in a moment of transgendering? Which one of them is the Spider Woman there? Melina, for sure. Well, I was going to say that you know <laughs> uh-huh. th- there is like there's. TJ. I'm sure if I watch. Well, if if I watch this a second or a third time, I'm sure I'd be able to find like some one to one transference between the story happening with Melina and Valentine and the movie within a movie, the Nuts propaganda film. But I just like 
didn't care enough to take note of their similarities. Well, you can do part of sorry, go ahead. But you can do part of this now. Well, what I was going to say though is the 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 more one to one transference, the more obvious transference where I didn't have to think about it at all was the very brief. Um, it's not the Nazi film that he's describing, but he is. Uh, there's a second little fantasy that story that Melina describes to Valentine about the titular Spider Woman, right. where there is a Spider Woman and this sailor shipwrecked and like you know is is blown onto the beach, and the Spider Woman tends to this man and nurses him back to health, and that is. A very, very clear one-to-one transference. And even Raul Julia even plays the sailor in the fantasy sequence. So, like, it is a very – and, you know, uh, Molina has previously nursed Valentine back to health, etc. Yes. So yeah. When he gets so poisoned, it, it, right? So Correct. Molina is the Spider-Woman in the one-to-one transference of the actual tale of the Spider-Woman that he tells to Valentine. So, like, I would assume that Molina would also be the Spider-Woman in The Kiss, right? The kiss happens after the sex. Correct. The sex. I sound like I'm 12. The sex happened. <laughs> and, and I think that's another it's – a, it's a sexual healing that happens there as well. Well, and remember, Melina is the one who's about to be released from prison. And, and uh, we haven't we've kind of, we haven't even touched on it yet. Melina throughout the film, as it turns out, is spying on Valentin on behalf of the warden and a government agent. So – the night of passion followed by the kiss in the morning. Melina doesn't reveal the information that, that um, Valentin uh, passes along to him right before that. The information about who to contact and, and, and what to basically what to do regarding the cause. Um, and yet he has changed. He has successfully transformed Melina because Melina doesn't rat him out. Yeah, so this is really important. In the novel, that's not revealed until, like, chapter 13 of 16. In the film, it's revealed at, I think, the midpoint. At the midpoint, right. right. Yeah. 64 in a two-hour yeah. movie, yeah. So, Josh, I, a minute ago, was like, oh, you can do this now. Make this connection. Here's why you can do this. What's a spider woman, Josh? Uh, it is a archetype, an archetypal character archetypical character from film noir where it's usually a woman who is potentially romantically involved with the lead detective in the first half and is often if not always shown to be the secret antagonist the secret bad guy in the back half yes usually what a spider woman is basically the idea is she's this duplicitous sexy woman who has secret knowledge Secret involvement in structures of power. She lures our poor protagonist, our world Speaking of Kathleen Turner and Body Heat. There you go. Yes. Into yeah. the web that she has spun and then kills him like a, a, a wanton fly. It's right? a very particular type of femme fatale. It is. There you go, Ken. Very particular type of femme, femme fatale. With film noir within film history, when was film noir most popular, Ken? The 40s and 50s. 40s yeah. Good. So it's also a ex- expressionistic type of film form, film aesthetic genre, that is responding directly to post-war politics, just like the Nazi propaganda films are doing pre-war politics. And the Spider-Woman, or the femme fatale, comes from a social anxiety about the, the new powerful role that women have in American and European society. Because as the men were away at war, the women had to run everything. And the men are coming back and going, oh, shit, I can't do – oh, she's doing my job? Oh, she doesn't just stay in the kitchen and make babies for me? Like what? And so there, there was fear about this new role and participation in what was previously a patriarchal hierarchy. So it's also, I think, based on – I'm trying to connect this to the Nazi propaganda film. Right. Well, because that's Lenny 
I mean, it's hard to describe Lenny as a Spider Woman. She's kind of she's kind of playing herself, really, yeah. um, to some degree, because she's she's a tied to the French Resistance. She considers herself a patriot, and yet she's she is um, she is a, obviously taken by the blonde headed German uh, mm-hmm. officer. Mm-hmm. Who manages to by the by the end of this this Nazi propaganda film manages to twist her mind into thinking that his cause is the right one that he's for justice, and she ends up deciding to to that to see it his way because he's her great love and it, obviously it's it's a, supposed to be a piece of propaganda. But Lenny is in essence the Spider Woman. She's wealthy. She's well connected. She's actually somewhat famous. She's singing in in a, in a very uh, high end club uh, at the beginning of the film within a film. Um, so I suppose she could fill the part. The the only problem being there, she kind of dupes herself because of course Lenny within the within the, the the propaganda film, Lenny ends up dead. Yeah. Well, which again kind of happens with Molina. Molina is a bit duplicitous, at least in intention, and then changes in that way. Um, one last note quickly about spider women. So spider, uh, Arachne, in the Greek myth of Arachne, Arachne is an artist who challenges and resists the patriarchal order, uh, the, the authority of the men. She disobeys them, and that's, that's the punishment that she suffers. But she takes pleasure in creating art that goes against what's ordered by the male-dominant society. So I think that's, that's an important kind of footnote to have in here as well. I want to go just a little bit more with the role of an importance of film within film. Josh, you also really like movies about movies. I do. This is a movie about movies. Mm, uh, it's a movie about fiction. Sure. Okay. Yes. What yes. did you What did you make of the to borrow your phrasing? The movies about movies of it all. Someone commented on my phrasing on TikTok where I yes, said the Trisha Ronda of it all. Yes, I, yeah. I believe it was with a smile face. So, it was yeah, it was in good fun. Um, well, the movies within movies of it all. Uh, I, I mean, I kind of already said it's like the fantasy, fantasy as escape. Um, you know, fa- in this case, like the the first like half is fantasy as coping, um, where they're in a, a a dire shitty situation, and so they try to pass the time and improve their own moods. Um, by by recounting this movie that Molina really loves and tries to raise Valentine's spirits. And it's interesting that like later on in the movie, in the second half, food serves the same purpose, like a nice meal and a cigarette, like like Valentine says. And he says the only thing missing is a good movie, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. he is, you know, literally nourished by food from Molina in the second half. And like theoretically, you could say he was, you know, maybe emotionally or spiritually nourished by. The recounting of this of this fantasy movie uh, in the first half, you know, we're we're talking around it um, by talking about the film, obviously, but the the fantasy of it all, um, and I I have no doubt we'll get more into it here shortly. I'll be honest, I was I just could not invest myself in this film <laughs> enough. I had a tough time too. Um, I had a tough time too. It, I had a very difficult time of caring, and a large part of it is, I think. It might maybe you, the easy way to be blame hurt and his depiction of Molina. I'm so glad you bring this up because my next question was Ken. Uh, we've been talking around William Hurt, and I yeah. think we needed to talk about William Hurt because yeah. whether so, I think your enjoyment of this movie largely rises and falls with the quote William Hurt of it all. 
Um, you could say he hurts the film's appeal. Something real quick before I go back to Ken about William Hurt. By point, point of clarification for the listeners, this movie makes extensive and I think important for its point use of what we are hereby going to refer to as the F slur. Uh, mm. The F word rhymes with duck. The F slur rhymes with maggot. Yep. If you still don't there follow you us, um, you've lived a You were not life. a high school boy in Jackson <laughs> <laughs> then. Yeah. So, Ken, to, uh, to William Hurt, please. Well, there's the best way the best way to describe uh, my feelings here. There's a moment about partway through the film when um, Raul Julia basically flips his shit on on Molina. Um, he, he, it's it's an evening, um, and he's he's observing the prisoner across the way, and he just can't seem to take any more at that moment, at least, of of kind of what appears to be Molina's vapid kind of going, you know, ramblings on about this this stupid Nazi propaganda movie. And he flips out on on Molina. Um, and I thought to myself, it's about damn time. Because I was <laughs> really, really, really tired of William Hurt. I Do you think you were tired of Molina or were you tired of William Hurt? I think it's hard to tell because okay. the problem the problem is Hurt as usual, I described as, I described him this way earlier in many of his roles. He comes off so stiffly, particularly from the very beginning of the film. It's really hard to connect with him because just the way he carries himself, he's either not emoting enough or he's trying to overcompensate. Mm. Um, he's got at, he's got moments where there should be, I think, some more genuine feeling in what he's saying, and he's just kind of just speaking it almost in a monotone. And there are other times when he almost it almost feels like he's trying to put on what he thinks is maybe how gay people sound. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, it's, it's just night and day sometimes between what he's trying to do with this character. I'm not sure he has a full sense of it. There's a flashback scene um, that, that shows him uh, walking. He meets with a waiter in a restaurant and he becomes friends with the waiter. There's no romance yeah. that grows out of it, but they're walking down the street at night and it's a small thing. But William Hurt has this odd walk. It's not natural. <laughs> but as he's walking down the street, I couldn't help but focus, fixate on it. And it looks like he's trying to create a walk he thinks would would be mm. the way Molina might be walking. And it does not look normal at all for anybody. And again, I think it speaks to the fact, I think he might be trying too hard at times. And at other times, it just does not come through at all. So it, it's hard for me to engage with the character because Hurt's performance just isn't doing it for me. We we kind of discussed this over over text, the three of us. He has a few levels of artifice that he's putting on here. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, he's playing a gay person. He's not a gay person himself, as far as I know. I'm not really sure, though, as far as I know. And he's also playing, I guess, a, a South American person. And he's a, a white man. Molina's so, Argentinian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, really no attempt made to make him appear Argentinian in any meaningful way, whether that be uh, aesthetically or vocally. Uh, aesthetically, good choice. Don't yeah, <laughs> do yeah. not try to make someone a different race via makeup. I hope we learned that lesson fifty years ago. We haven't, but you know, you'd like to think. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I guess to Ken's like way earlier point, he he always kind of struck me as a little stiff, and um, I think. TJ, you said over text this week as we were watching this, respectively, that uh, remind you of Buffalo Bill from yeah. Silent Lambs yeah. and Ted Levine. Yeah. And uh, 
I got that too. And maybe yeah. it's just cause it's like a, it's a balding white man. Um, <laughs> kind of like, um, uh, you know, p- putting on a lot of feminine, uh, signifiers and that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe that was, maybe that was it, but well, and the scene when he says to Raul Julia, it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. It does this whenever it's cold. I, I don't believe uh, Melina ever said that to Valentine. Oh, that was cut, I think. <laughs> yeah, that was um, was she a big fat person? I believe that was, that did make, that it, did make it in. Yeah. 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 Uh, something else, I think, with William Hurt as well, and this goes to what Ken's saying, his, his oscillations of emphasis, I think, border on silly to be generous. When he's going through the grocery bag, this was, I backed it up and I laughed. And he goes, tea. <laughs> he pulls out a bag of tea and he holds it up and he goes, tea. And I'm like, what are you doing? Um, so he has a couple moments like that where he, I, I know that the, and the character's written as being very camp. He was sure, a drag yeah. queen. Mm-hmm. But there's something about Hurt's performance that for me just rings false. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it, it's not. It's weird to say this, uh, but I'll, I will. Maybe I'm adopting a phrase. It's not genuine camp. Mm. He, there, there, there doesn't seem to be any like full-on investment or even mm-hmm. understanding of what camp maybe is supposed supposed to be. I'm not sure Hurt really embodies that or understands that because yeah. what, what we get is not camp. It's just kind of it borderline offensive, really, at times, and frustratingly so while you're watching this because this movie kind of drags. It's not the longest <laughs> of films. <laughs> Did that walked into that one? Um, it 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 does though. It it it's way much much too long, particularly how grating his performance is. We're just gonna just keep piling on to hurt here, but and he, yet widely acclaimed and widely accoladed. Admit he wins best actor, and I literally jotted down a note while watching this. This film won an Academy Award. Dot, 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 for best actor, because he is the biggest obstacle for me to this film being good. And yet I think it is a very, this type of role wins Oscars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, is is Brendan Fraser's performance in The Whale going to age very well? Better than this. It's it's worth throwing out there. No, is my answer. <laughs> I'm just going to say oh. better than this. I won't say well. I, I but think I'm a, not sure a, it'll age better than this, honestly. Like, I think there's a degree to Oscar voting that is like, we really like when people transform and really go for it. And the weird thing that's difficult about acting, as you can see in the, talking about acting, as you can see in the propaganda film, is all acting seems realistic at the time. And then... I mean, like James Dean, right? Everybody was like, oh my God, James Dean. It's so realistic. You go back and watch James Dean. I like James Dean stuff, but people don't act like that. You no, know? yeah. His, so, he's really good rebel, but it's it, it's not uh, it's not really how teenagers were actually it's, acting. Well, it's all, it's all stylized, right? right? And I think this is stylized in a way that um, perhaps is transparent, if that's fair. Yeah. I, I will say, though, to your comment, I mean, I understood. I, I felt like the, the movie within a movie, his Nazi propaganda film... Obviously, there's they're intentionally making it absurd, absurdly bad to a degree. Because I mean, the French the French resistance characters are caricature villains. Um, the villain, the, the 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 thieves that are referenced in the film, the ones he prefers, we were talking about earlier, the Jews. Um, they're apparently like robbing grocery stores and stuff earlier on in the film. Um, it's supposed to be an intentional, I guess, partially a parody of Nazi propaganda movies. The reality is, it just it's really terrible. 
Um, and William Hurt's performance, I feel, would have been better suited in that movie within a movie, if I'm being mm-hmm. honest. Because well, it's... maybe I could see someone arguing that he lived so much in that world that he's taken on that stylistic affect. I was just going to say that, yeah. I mean, Perhaps. The, the reason, the movie he's describing is also camp because he's camp. I guess that's what I would say to that, yeah. So, again, we've, we've talked a lot, but I think you have to talk a lot about William Hurt. Um, something I wanted to see out of his performance that he didn't quite get if I walk, watched back, maybe it's in there, but it would have been interesting to see him actually code switch. Hmm. Times in which he yeah. would have felt being more quote-unquote camp and times in which he felt that he needed to be more masculine. You see it a bit in the scene where he's being interrogated by the warden and the warden's really angry right-hand man yeah. Um, yeah. who was like a Mark Wahlberg from The Departed. <laughs> that's <laughs> where you hear That's where you hear a lot of the F-slur yeah, yeah. in so the movie. Yeah. I think it would have been interesting. Again, maybe it's there, I only watched this once, but that man is the one who uses the F-slur a lot in this film. And sometimes Molina uses it referring to himself, but in a way that I think is supposed to be, um, he's not owning it, he's making a point, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. In that, I think it would have been interesting in the moments to see him try to, to be a little more uncomfortable and to see him try to kind of code switch into more masculine. The only thing I noticed about that scene is he comments on the coffee being refreshing before he even drank it, which bothered me. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there's... With, with the use of the, the F slur in here, I'm arguing that it actually is kind of an important inclusion in this because it hits it hits pretty hard. I don't think it's it flippant. Yeah. It hits hard. And what's going on in the world, at least in the United States at this time, are you guys familiar with the press conferences in the early 80s with the White House and their reaction to AIDS? Uh, degree. maybe tangentially familiar. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm aware of the fact that Ronald Reagan did not say the word AIDS for many years, uh, like till like his friend Rock Hudson was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. But for the first several years of of the epidemic, he uh, of the plague, he did little to nothing. Is my understanding. Even then, you mentioned Rock Hudson. Even then, despite the fact that the Reagans were close friends with Rock Hudson, um, particularly Nancy Reagan, um, even when he's you know, goes public or he dies from, from AIDS. It's kind of crickets from the white house. Um, relatively speaking, um, I, there may have been a press release or something in regards to it, but, um, yeah. So what's the point about the press conferences in the white house near ladies on AIDS? Well, famously there's recordings of this in a transcript that when asked about, you know, at the point that over 600 people had died, what's the white house going to do about AIDS? The spokesman joked, Oh, the gay plague. Hmm. No, we haven't heard. Yeah. Oh, oh, no one in the White House has the gay plague. Oh, are you saying the president has? The, and and they're laughing. And it's this leaks later, and it's very famous that they just didn't take it very seriously. This is in 1982. The novels, I think, written in 83. The film comes out in 85. We're not really even to the height of public awareness of AIDS at the time. And this isn't an AIDS film, but this is a film that is a lot about queer suffering. Hmm. And so I think the use of the word that's in there as a way of constantly putting Melina in his place is doing pretty strong political work in 1985. Because what what the Epsler does, other than putting these people down, is it's acknowledging this otherwise open secret of you are a homosexual person, in addition to the other horrible things that it does, right? Um, I don't know. I just thought it was in- interesting context to kind of put us back in the 80s and to think of what this this film is operating at 
politically, if that makes sense. It also, it, it's a note that that right-hand man you're describing, I'm not sure if he's a right-hand man of the warden or if he's a government agent on behalf of the military dictatorship who is, they're, they're investigating and trying to reach, um, they keep referring to it as Valentino, Valentin's group, um, but his, his compatriots, the other people who are fighting against the military dictatorship, they're trying to uncover information and they think uh, Valentin is the guy to get it from and they're going to do it through his cellmate. Um, and the government, it's this government agent's kind of constant put down of Molina. You can tell he's not, he's not wild about the idea or certainly not comfortable with the idea of using Molina as their man Mm -hmm. on the inside to get this information. It's the warden that's, that's using, that's trying to use Molina. The warden likes the idea of using it. And the warden is the one who keeps kind of giving him a leash, um, a bit more length to, to try and get the information as well as best he can. I agree with you. I agree with you, though, TJ, that it, the movie does kind of pick its spots with the F slur. It's not like a constant stream. So, like, you know, every time it happens, it does kind of hit mm-hmm. pretty hard, like more so than you would think a, a movie from the 80s would. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's effective to, to the point you're making. Yeah. And further on that point, I want to ask you this. A lot of the time, this is not included as kind of one of the benchmarks of early and important queer film. It's, I don't think it's in the celluloid closet. Um, there's a documentary about the history of queer film. This, this isn't really marked as that, which suggests that a queer theory or queer approaches to film criticism are kind of disowning this movie. Well, I mean, as you know, TJ, I did a, uh, like a four month long deep dive on the birdcage a That's year correct. or so ago. And uh-huh. I kind of, uh, did a very insultingly brief Wikipedia level history of queer characters in movies. For, as a part of the research for that Birdcage video, and uh, this did not come up at all, mm. at all. Like I said, when I turned this movie on, I really had no idea what it was about. I didn't know it, it even included queer characters because it was completely absent from any any digging I did about the history of queer characters mm-hmm. in movies. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting to me. I wonder if a part of this has to do with what's Molina in jail for. That's a so this is a good question because I wanted to ask you, TJ, whether or not. It's des- it's described in more detail in the book because the film, the suggestion is he might be in there for some form of pedophilia. Well, uh, something about I forget like um, it's not endangering a minor, but it's like something like that. Like corruption. that was the word they corruption corruption of a minor. Yeah, um, a few things we never learned what corruption means at least in the context of the Correct. movie, and we also don't know how old this person was. And also like uh, <laughs> in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and before. Um, protecting the children was a front often used by the anti-LGBT crowd. And so whether or not Molina actually did anything Correct. untoward a minor, or if that was just, hey, you're gay and my kids are near you, therefore you need to go to jail kind of thing. The, like The only catch of this film, we hear it from the government agent. I think we also hear it referenced by valentin at one point but there's there are the phrase that comes up a couple times is little boys um so that's why i'm i'm not exactly sure whether we're to take it as being that he did something with minors or whether yeah it's just because they're um they're opposed to homosexual behavior and the government is is using him somehow as a example so let me introduce tj's literature corner tj you read the book (laughs) i did read the book and the answer is no. They're not any clearer. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think this is an error with the the IP, to use the parlance of our times, which is, I think it matters a lot 
Yeah. This being clear, this being yeah. clarified. Yeah. Um, I think it matters a lot. And it really isn't. I think the implication on the part of Puig is, is twofold. I think the implication is, no, he didn't. And putting the onus on the audience to... Connect that dot? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And what does it say about you, about the way you connect that dot? Now, there's a couple important things. I, I'm not an expert on this. We need Ken's Law Corner, perhaps. But I did look up what were age of consent laws in these countries at the time. And within, someone's going to look this up and correct me, but I believe within both <laughs> Brazil and Argentina, there was this like age of consent was 18, but I think down to like 14 or 16, there was this like bubble where if you had a sexual relationship with someone in that age group, you were charged with corrupting minors, but not direct like statutory rape. Hmm. So the suggestion there, if my Wikipedia of this is correct, is perhaps he had a sexual relationship with like a 17-year-old. But again, I think Josh's point is very important that this was shorthand for you're gay and I don't like it. Um, yeah. it's, kind of, it's how they got Oscar Wilde, right? Um, and it's currently happening with trans people, by the way, in like our current political landscape. Uh, right. they're, they're playing the same cards, mm-hmm. doing the same playbook again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's something else with the, with the literature corner. The book does some interesting things and i say interesting because parts of it make it very difficult to read actually is you guys thought there was a lot about the nazi propaganda film there are six films in the book six yes that he describes the first one's cat people which interesting (laughs) connection there's a remake of cat people written and directed by paul schrader uh so and cat people is a noir that's about this woman that turns into a cat and is a dangerous cat so there's all it all fits it's a, it's a cult it's a bit of a cult film Yes, and as the films progress, they become more and more made up and hard to identify. The first one is obviously Cat People, and after that, you're like, "Ah, I think he's making shit up now. (laughs) The book is also told completely in unattributed dialogue, except for transcripts taken from the warden's office. So any meetings with the warden, it says like, warden, colon, and dialogue. Melina, colon, dialogue, or prisoner, I'm sorry, it says prisoner. The rest of it is just dashes, and then them speaking. Which I think is key as an aesthetic choice to this idea that they... One begins political and the other begins, uh, you know, um, feminine, and then they they sort of switch, right? So it has to do with the uh, blurring of their two identities. Something else the novel does, it has parts that are stream of consciousness that are in italics. And then most curiously, at the bottom, there are footnotes that run through most of it at points of their disagreement. And the footnotes are recaps or capsules of psychological explanations of theories on the origin of homosexuality. This sounds exhausting. <laughs> um, so you'll they'll be talking about something and then there's a footnote and it's like, this person says that the reason that gay men are effeminate is because they bonded more closely with their mother. Like, And then there's another one and it's like, but so-and-so disputes this. Here, here's what's going on, I think, in this novel. Uh, what Puig's trying to do is he's trying to bring a certain awareness to this, but it's more than that. The other thing that he's doing is this is a post-critique novel. So it's participating in what's called the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is look at all of the ways we have of explaining and knowing the world. It's through film, it's through politics, it's through science, psychology, sexual relations, etc. And in what ways can these argue with one another? And in what ways do they fail to actually give a full picture of what it is that's going on? Because you're supposed to read the psychoanalytical things not as like, aha, I understand Melina now. You're supposed to read it as, well, that's an interesting, odd theory, right? Um <laughs> 
And yeah, um, so that's it's a lot of interesting stuff that comes in from the novel that is kind of exhausting. But did you like this book and did you like this movie, TJ? Have you noticed I always avoid the "Did you like this movie?" question? Well, I'm, you notice I'm, I ask anyway. Yeah, so you do. Why you're not prepared for it? Well, I'm prepared for it, but I'm always more interested in just getting into the like nitty gritty of it. Um, well, we've been in the nitty gritty. We're an hour in. I know. That's why. I, uh, anyway, I'm gonna say yes. I think it does very interesting things with kind of attempting to re-educate about art and about critique and what ways can art be reappropriated for political and personal causes. I think that stuff is very interesting. To get to some boilerplate questions we tend to end our episodes with, uh, does this deserve an Oscar nomination? Would it be nominated today? That sort of thing for Best Picture. I don't think it gets nominated today. No. And I think that this was a movie that was probably over-celebrated because of the time it came out. I think it was a lot more cutting edge in its exploration of politics and identity. I think so, yeah. I mean, not unlike, you know, we talked about this kind of ad nauseum in the 1948 series, how, like, you know, several movies, not every best picture there, presumably got points because they were at the cutting edge, as you say, of social causes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And this one, not too dissimilar from that, Yeah, possibly. Yeah, they're on. They're in the vein of Johnny Belinda and the Snake Pit, perhaps. Um, uh, I I agree with both of you. I think that it sounds like we all are of the mind that this probably wouldn't get nominated today. Honestly, I I I can't. I have trouble understanding how it was nominated. Then I get what we're saying that maybe it's because it's the only film really even somewhat or slightly touching on this topic of trans community, the LGBTQ um, community and issues uh, going on at the time of the 1980s. But it's just, it's it's so slow moving and Hurt's performance, it boggles the mind that he won Best Actor here. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I hate to, I hate to put it all on, on just one thing, but it's so important to this film because it's a two-hander. It's really between Molina and Valentin, so it's between Hurt and Julia. And and I, I think Raul Julia is doing a really good job of trying to deliver. To um, I actually yeah, like his performance. Here? I would have loved to have seen him opposite somebody other than Hurt because he is a fantastic actor and he's got so much passion to give to his, his character and certain moments. I'm buying it. I totally buy into the character Valentin has delivered. Yeah, I think he's great. But it's only one half of a two-hander and the other half is so distracting that it it does ruin it for me. So I, I'm not wild about the film entirely because uh, one of the lead uh, the the performance that wins best actor just doesn't work. That just reminded me of something I wanted to ask you this TJ about the book is so the movie is from can we all agree the movie is from Molina's point of view? I think he's privileged. Yeah, yeah. Is the novel the same? No, because it's it's I I guess you would call it third person objective. Third person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Third person objective. It's pretty much just, again, it, it's just a record of dialogue. There's no even, like, he said he walked over to the clothes hanging on the thing. It's it's just dialogue. In that case, I think it's an interesting adaptive choice to kind of center this on Melina. Um, I, I wonder what this movie would have looked like if Raul Julia was more of our point of view character. Hmm. Um, you know, and... and He's, he's more reactive. You know, again, we, like you said, William Hurt is definitely more privileged, but 
if you just describe these two characters to me, these two people at the start of the movie, I would say that Raul Julia is the more interesting person, yes. the mm-hmm. person I'd be more interested in following uh, through the arc of this story. And yeah, maybe honestly, maybe like privileging the point of view of Molina is, is like, to use your words, the cutting edge, you know, societal issue that they're, you know, centering a queer person as opposed to centering the straight person's reaction to the queer person, you know? Or, or his marxist cause right that's that too (laughs) even if we talk about their arcs the fact that raul julia starts off more interesting because exactly because of his background and his motivations right the character is just instantly more interesting admittedly molina is also he's just openly admitting the fact oh he's more interested in love and the romance and and that emotional side to things and admits that love has no place for for the, the in the world of spies or politics like but it, that's the well, more interesting world, particularly he, he, right now. He does, he does actually say he does actually say love is a luxury a spy cannot afford. Right. Mm. Which when he said that, I I knew at that point that he was up to something. Mm. Sure. Because we didn't re- yet reveal that he was a spy himself. But yeah. sorry, continue. Well, no, it, it's just interesting. We talked about the arc even by the end of it. So we've got Valentin who he, is, he essentially escapes into fantasy at the end of the film. But it feels more earned in a way, given everything he's gone through. I mean, the last we see of him, he's in the prison hospital bed, and he's clearly been beaten again since Valentin is, since um uh, excuse me, Molina has left. Valentin's been beaten again, so he escapes into fantasy. But it feels more earned, whereas Molina out there in the real world, he ends up. It feels like he gets in way over his head, because he does. Um, he literally, it, the moment he decides to get involved, it all goes terribly bad for him. At the very end. And I think in privileging Melina, the movie becomes more about queer representation than it becomes about the contemporary politics of Latin America, which is what yeah, essentially got the novel banned in Argentina. Um, that it, it, it's the, the film is much more interested in deconstructing notions of Latin American machismo than it is in. Yeah, masculinity. Yeah. yeah than talking about kind of the Marxist cause, I think. And maybe maybe that's a marketing decision. I'm not sure, but <laughs> well, they do say they literally have discussion in the first act or like early in the second act. Like they ask the question, what what, what a real man is, and yeah. they discuss their respective opinions on what a real man is. And Valentin notably says his answer is uh, a real man is uh, not humiliating not humiliating anybody and not letting pe- the people around you feel degraded. Mm-hmm. So it's about like human dignity, which is interesting given he is rooming with a queer person who is you know. Uh, dehumanized regularly by the people around them but um and then like that that dignity aspect like where valentine kind of turns a corner with melina is when he soils himself uh in the wake of being poisoned and melina in a very maternal gesture cleans him up yeah and uh so again kind of and he and valentine asks over and over again aren't you disgusted by the smell doesn't this gross you out and melina's like yeah whatever i think the background of AIDS there is very important as well because who was caring for AIDS patients at this time? Their queer brothers and sisters were at were at home tending to their lesions and their illness and so it's it's slightly ironic that like Valentine's definition of what a man is is kind of like preserving the dignity of others and so in this gesture Melina is acting like a man per Valentine's definition but also is again extremely maternal. And it's kind of like, I think it's kind of because of this scene that like Valentine kind of starts to turn a corner with Melina and eventually sleeps with them. So like, yeah. um, I thought that was very interesting. And I guess the other interesting thing that I want to just come back to is, 
I thought, as I said, Valentine was the more interesting character to start the movie, and that kind of remained the case for a while. I didn't think Molina became interesting until the midpoint reveal that he's spying on Valentine for the warden. However, it's also interesting that by the time we learn that information, he's clearly no longer interested in doing that mm-hmm. and is more interested in helping Valentine at that point. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of that, I mean, we, we talked about how the, you know, he is, he's more interested in personal causes. Molina, uh, Valentine's more interested in larger political causes, but at that point, Molina has been poisoned. He has ingested the poison intended for Valentine. Yeah. So Molina has gone through the stomach pains and like knows, has experienced firsthand what these, what the warden is doing to, or trying to do to Valentine. So like has kind of stepped into Valentine's shoes and presumably kind of like taken his side instead of the warden's, I guess, at that point. He becomes a political prisoner in a different way. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of when Valentine turns a corner for, with uh, Millie turns a corner with Valentine, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that was interesting. That's good. That's good. We obviously don't like William Hurd in this. <laughs> How would, who, who would you cast? And you can jump space and time. Okay, that's oh. helpful. That's that's, that's, that's um, very helpful. So I don't I don't have to cast Luis Guzman. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Can I give you my answer first? Sure. Yeah. I, I have two answers. One, uh, Silvero Pereira, who's in Baccarat, who is a drag actor, Brazilian drag actor, I think would be kind of perfect for that. More mainstream, and I realize he's Mexican and not Argentinian. Gael Garcia Bernal. Oh, that's exactly what yeah. that's exactly what I thought of. And well, he's he, old now. He went. He went to Beats to Makes You Old. So he's, he is, he he's is too old. old. He, he um, aged out of the part after spending a few days there. But especially if you've seen Bad Education, he's doing a lot of this. And and I couldn't help but thinking as I was thinking about that, this movie might have been a lot better in the hands of Pedro Almodovar. Mm, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's hard to. That's a good. <laughs> hard to argue. Yeah. What about you guys? Who would you cast as Molina? Can you agree with me? Um, I. I Bernal is exactly who I thought at first. Oh, wow. Um, uh-huh. If I'm thinking of the 80s, again, I, I, admittedly, I'm not thinking of a, a gay actor here, but and I think Antonio Banderas of the time period would have been probably more appropriate. Well, than, he, he played queer characters in a lot of El Modovar films. Correct. Well, yeah. it, 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 I'm glad you mentioned El Modovar because um, that's exactly. Banderas was the next one that came to mind after Bernal, but Bernal required yeah, jump in time. I'm thinking Bernal in the 2000s. Um, I think fits the bill. Um, yeah, that's a. It's hard. I like Raul Julia. Um, I think either one of those would have been much, much better than Hurt. I could. We probably could have think of, could think of other um, Caucasian act, male actors or American actors who would also fit better than Hurt. But Raul Julia could have just played both roles. Right. Josh, do you have somebody who'd be a better Molina? Uh, this sounds like a joke, and I don't mean it as a joke. What if Ricky Martin played this part? Oh. Do you see the uh, assassination of Johnny Versace? No. I did not. Ricky Martin played Johnny Versace's uh, lover, companion. Interesting. And uh, Ricky Martin was excellent. So a, a remake of this could be Ricky Martin and um, Edgar Ramirez, who's also in that. Sure. The yeah, Venezuelan absolutely. actor as... Uh, yeah. Valentine. That would have been really interesting. Um, I'm out of notes. So do you guys have any any last comments, questions, things about the, the film? The Kirsch of the Spider Woman. I think I've said everything that I wanted to say. Um, my larger thoughts was like that Molina is unconcerned with politics and more interested in aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Hence, you know, their penchant for the Nazi propaganda movie. Um, 
And the movie, I think, is largely about personal stakes versus political stakes, worrying about yourself versus worrying about a larger cause outside of yourself. And that I thought it was interesting that Melina theoretically could have a cause, like gay rights, etc., but doesn't seem to care about that at all. Mm-hmm. And Valentine does have a cause. And uh, and yet, in the ending, Melina dies for the political cause, and Valentine's escape through fantasy is personal. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and romantic and fabulous. And romantic. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's kind of all I really thought about it though. Okay. And <laughs> I'm not one to complain about runtimes, but I kind of agree with Ken that this is a kind of a two hour slog for me. Um, yeah, I, I didn't care for it overall, but I thought it had some interesting stuff in it. I would say despite yeah. you guys, neither of you guys liking it, I think you both picked up on very interesting things that the movie's about and does. I think it's doing some pretty complex and interesting. Uh, we are serious film people. That's so true. Gonna, and we do yeah. give you an adequate discussion every week. That's true. And I think, yes, we do. I think to that point, I think Josh and I probably would have liked this film, but for its glaring problem, its glaring fault and weakness, which <laughs> exactly. Well, honestly, I was less bothered by William Hurt than I was by the movie within a movie. Mm-hmm. Honestly, every time it cut to a sequence, movie within a movie, my eyes kind of glazed over. And, like I said, I'm sure if I watched it a second or a third time, I might be able to like understand some stuff happening in the film within a film that's reflecting things about the main storyline. But I just like I just didn't care, right? Yep. To think think enough in those terms about it. And now that you mention that, uh, that's another important part, and I think done a lot better in Bad Education. So every everyone's homework now. Granted, it's rated NC-17, but everyone's homework is to watch Pedro Almodovar's Bad Education from I think 2002. Um, get okay. a permission slip signed, and uh, yeah, I'm an adult. So <laughs> all right that's all i got you guys wrap this I'm thing good. up no i think yeah okay. let's, let's wrap this one up and move beautiful. on beautiful what uh, is next week next week meryl streep mariel streep and robert redford starring in sydney pollock's film out of africa you kind of went to david lynch mode there for a second <laughs> meryl streep meryl streep <laughs> she's Bob in africa redford and she's spending a lot of time getting out we're going to Africa, Coop. Bring your safari hat and mosquito nets. We we promise, though, that the uh, the record the next week's episode will not be as long as the movie itself. I'm not promising that. <laughs> um, all right, so that's that's us. For, uh, that's it from us. The serious the film Spider Woman. And next week, out of Africa. That's your other homework. It's two hours and forty minutes. So get started. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Sayonara. Thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks everybody. See you guys.